Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. One thing I've learned about the best presidential historians is that they need to have and retain a keen interest in their subject, or in Michael Beschloss's case, subjects as their books can easily take years to research and write. His book, Presidents of War, is the culmination of a decade of work, and it is no surprise that in his first week it is already number three on the New York Times bestsellers list. The author of nine books on presidential history, Michael is the NBC News presidential historian and a frequent contributor to PBS NewsHour. As President Trump often references the ability of the U.S. to use its considerable military force a discussion on how his predecessors brought our nation to war is timely and warranted. Welcome. Great to have you with Thank us. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Jim. So one of the key themes of your book is how eight of our presidents circumvented, ignored, or used the powers granted by the Constitution in their deliberations to wage war. So let's begin our discussion. Take us to Philadelphia. Well, in Philadelphia, the founders were worried that presidents in the future would become dictators, so they made sure that wars would be declared not by presidents, but by Congress. And over 200 years, we've gotten very far away from that. Presidents now have the ability to start wars almost single-handedly, almost overnight. And the last time that a president bothered to ask Congress for a war declaration was 1942. And I think we've had a few wars since then. That's for sure. One of the major architects of the Constitution, of course, is James Madison. And in drafting the Constitution, he was really one of the strongest advocates for this, the, 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 the inability of the president to declare war by himself. That's why it's so ironic that he's the one who sort of broke the whole thing, because great founder, not a very good president from my point of view. In 1812, he was the one who went to Congress to ask it to enter the War of 1812 a war that I would argue turned out to be the most unpopular in, in history, even more than Vietnam, and the first war that we really lost because we never achieved the aims that Madison set out, which were stop the Brits from harassing our ships and also conquer Canada. I know you said unpopular, and I read that in the book. How do you measure that at that time? It's not like we had polls or uh, no. through and the newspapers? That is uh, because there were a number of states that were about to secede from the Union because they were so angry that we were fighting this war. Uh, you can look at that in terms of the midterm elections of 1814, the data we've got, pro-Madison candidates who lost. And also, it's my general judgment of the tenor of the population at the time and the anger against Madison for this War of 1812, which they could not understand, was almost like that of Vietnam later on. But Madison deserves some credit because he could have been much stricter and censure newspapers or remove some civil liberties. He could, but I think once he had committed the original sin of dragging the nation into a war that was not essential, and the founders in Philadelphia, as you know, all said we only want wars waged that are essential to our national security. Once he broke, broke that commitment, I'm glad he didn't violate civil liberties, but it's a little bit secondary to me. We were just talking earlier when you arrived about how we both have strong connections to Charlottesville and particularly the Monticello Foundation. Thomas Jefferson was very wary about military engagement. He was, and if he were not so wary, we would have had a war of 1807, as I write about in the book. There was a 
fight between the American ship, the Chesapeake, and the British ship, the Leopard, off of Norfolk. And the Brits won, and Americans were furious and demanding war. And it was only because Jefferson was so peace-loving and worried about getting into wars that were not essential that he kept us from doing it. Since we're in Texas, I think we better spend a little bit of time talking about someone who was probably not a great president, and that's James Polk. But um, that, That's my view. Not everyone feels that way. But he certainly got us into that war under false pretenses. And the American public allowed that to happen. Yeah, you had a president who was a liar and a cheat and a scoundrel who staged a fake incident on the Texas border so that Mexicans would attack and so that Polk could go to Congress and say, we've been attacked by Mexico, we need a major war all the way to Mexico City, which he did. And the problem was that there was an ulterior motive that he was lying about it, and his ulterior motive was a good one, which was to get nearly a million square miles of territory to help make this a continental nation, Atlantic to the Pacific. I'm not arguing about his goal. I'm just saying it shouldn't have been hidden. He shouldn't have been lying about it. And he shouldn't have taken the nation to war over something that he knew did not happen. One of the things that I've also found really of interest and that I've forgotten, that income tax really came about from Abraham Lincoln to finance the war. And it's always struck me that, especially with the Iraq war, that Americans really didn't feel the pain. That's exactly right, and that was something that early Americans felt that if there should be a war, it should not only be essential for our security, but everyone should bear the sacrifice equally. And in recent decades, that's been one of the problems because we wage these wars and they're fought on the battlefield by a very small percentage of the American population. Presidents don't necessarily raise taxes to pay for these wars, and if you weren't looking closely, you could go through these periods when we were waging wars like Iraq and we're still fighting Afghanistan and not even know that there's a war on. You never would have said that during World War II or World War I. Every president has their own approach on how to handle their generals. Uh, president Obama essentially approved a lot of military operations. We hear that President Trump gives the military a lot of leeway. Talk with us about the overall development of civilian military protocol. And then after, I'd love to hear your discussion of about the firing of two generals, McClellan by Lincoln and obviously MacArthur by Truman. Well, why don't I start there, which is that Lincoln and Truman knew that generals have a lot of expertise, but they don't have as much expertise as the commander-in-chief, who not only may have some knowledge in military strategy, but also has a more general picture of the entire country and the good of the people uh, as an aggregate, that's what they have to worry about. And so in Lincoln's case, he was impatient with McClellan and finally fired him, although he gave him a lot of time to prove himself. In the case of MacArthur and Truman, Truman was bristling at the fact that MacArthur seemed to Truman to challenge the civilian control of the military, and I think he was absolutely right, paid a huge political price by firing MacArthur. Uh, his poll ratings went down, a lot of people were angry against Truman, but if you will note, ever since 1951, we haven't seen a real case in which Americans were worried about a general who had too much power in challenging a president. One thing I was surprised to find out about was in early 1968, Lyndon Johnson was in 
had gone through four years of the Vietnam War, we were not making great headway and we were in danger of losing. And his commander, General William Westmoreland, said, why don't we use nuclear weapons to avert defeat? And Johnson, to his great credit, said, absolutely not. I've been working hard to keep this war from going nuclear. It could bring in the Russians and the Chinese, could cost the lives of 60 million human beings, could incinerate much of the northern hemisphere. It's a good way of showing what we're talking about because from Westmoreland's point of view, you know, sure, use every weapon in the arsenal to avert defeat, terrible thing for the United States to even think of the possibility of defeat. From Johnson's point of view, as much as he felt that there were issues at stake in Vietnam for us to lose 60 million human beings over a, a, a civil war in an agricultural country, even Johnson knew that, that was ridiculous. Now, this is one of the revelations that really comes out in your book from, I don't know how you did it, you listened to how many hours of LBJ tapes? Uh, 674, but who's counting? In some days, 12 hours? Uh, Your wife it, must have loved that. Uh, she didn't love it because I began talking about LBJ, which is usually profane. But in some of the reviews, Michael, and there was an article in the Dallas Morning News a few days ago by Greg Jones, who's also written a book on Vietnam. On Quezon. And he said in this uh, op-ed piece that a lot of what you had reported had already been disclosed. Well, he was writing about the New York Times article that mm -hmm. was based on that. He was not writing on my book. Okay. But I stand by the New York Times article, which emphasized essentially two things. Number one, documents that had come out in the last three years, I believe, that were several years after his book. And more important than that, I spoke to, and the author of that article, David Sanger, spoke to Tom Johnson, who was a close aide to LBJ. And he filled in what the documents could not because he was sitting there when Johnson got this request from Westmoreland to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. And by his account, he said that the president went was extremely angry, that he liked Westmoreland, never trusted him, and that what Johnson was worried about was not only quashing this request to go nuclear, but also wanted to make sure that there were not documents that could be used by generals not only Westmoreland, but others, to say Johnson is putting a stranglehold on the generals who otherwise have a way to win, and otherwise nuclear weapons. So what he told Tom Johnson, according to what Tom Johnson told me and also David Sanger, said, lock up all these documents. I don't want anyone to see them for decades. Hmm. And that's the way I saw several of these that were open in the last couple of years, which basically create the link that allow you to tell the story. This was known before that Johnson had asked to use nuclear weapons, but not how he shut this down and why. And you really feel from reading your book, especially of the transcripts of the recordings, just how hard this was on President Johnson. And of course, he decided not to run for re-election. But did he regret the decision? Uh, he did. As I show in the book, uh, by the summer of 1968, he regretted giving up power and actually tried to get the delegates in Chicago through sort of a number of covert maneuvers to demand that he run for another term. Uh, and actually, Johnson had his chief of staff, a guy named Martin Marvin Watson, go to the old Mayor Daley, who was extremely powerful in those days, and say, you know, the president is thinking that perhaps he might be available after all. And Daley was a pretty cold-blooded guy. He said, 
you know, if he wants it, he's going to have to announce, and it might not even happen even then. So off to the ranch he went. That was the end of the draft. I wish this was Global IQ Hour instead of Global IQ Minute, but let me ask you one more question, and that is, what is the most egregious example of a president taking the country to war on the basis of information which he knew was false? I think it's a three-way tie, Jim, between Polk and Mexico, McKinley in 1898 after the sinking of the American ship, the Maine, saying we now have to go to war with Spain in revenge. Turns out it was sunk by a boiler accident. Yeah. Couldn't go to war with boilers. And then 1964, LBJ announces on TV that there has been an unprovoked attack in the Gulf of Tonkin. The reports were of an attack. It certainly he knew was not unprovoked because we were provoking North Vietnamese boats all over the place. And within a couple of weeks, he learned that there was no attack at all. And LBJ, whom I admire in so many other ways, did not go to Congress and say, this Gulf of Tonkin resolution that you've passed allowing me to wage war in Vietnam, the incident on which it has been based, turns out did not happen, perhaps you should withdraw it. So the result is that Johnson and Nixon waged a decade-long war on the basis of a resolution that was based on something that never occurred. Is Congress now avoiding its responsibility? Totally. The great presidents in history and war have been presidents who got really searing criticism from their own party leaders in Congress. And LBJ was not a great war president, but his majority leader, Mike Mansfield, hated his war, as did the chairman, Democratic chairman of foreign relations, William Fulbright. Coming back to the founders, the founders always felt that in the system that they had devised, you get the best policy from conflict. They hoped that leaders in Congress would searingly criticize the behavior of presidents. You'd only get better leadership. And if you look at a president's party leaders in Congress during the last 20 or 30 years, especially in wartime, uh, they have been largely lapdogs, and it has not been for the good of the republic. Well, I want to congratulate you for presidents of war. Thank you. It's also, I think, a good sign to see that so many Americans are reading a book like this and, well, and really nice diving into it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.